Good morning everyone. My name, my name is John and I'm also part of the team here. And it's good to be back from holidays and back in church with everyone. Now for those of you who were fortunate enough to be able to go away over the Christmas New Year break and you're back, it's good to have you back with us all. For those of you who didn't go away but you kept the ship moving forward, we just want to say thank you. It's good to come back and know everything has been going well. So as we heard a little while ago from Adam, we're starting a new sermon series called What the World Needs Now. And I am really looking forward to being part of the teaching team of this new series because it's going to clarify for us, friends, the reason and the purpose for why we are a church. Now, when you hear the title of the series, just have a look at the screen, the title of the series, What the World Needs Now, what do you think of? For me, I I think of Dionna Warwick's singing this song. recorded by her in 1966 and you know something the lyrics are very prophetic I say that because as we stand at the starting point of 2018 we find ourselves in a unique cultural moment our world is very different to the one that many of us have always known. There is increasing division and polarisation, confusion and uncertainty as morality and ethics changes so rapidly. Which reminds me of another song. You won't hear the lyrics here, but you know the song, Bob Dylan's famous song, the times they are a-changing. And that song was recorded in 1964. But let me ask you the question truthfully, what does the world need now? The world that you and I live in. The world that you and I are called to influence. What does our confused, fragmenting, changing world need? Our world needs God. God knows this. That's why he sent Jesus. And God has chosen us, the church, his people, to be his ambassadors, to be his difference makers as we go into the world as Christians. And that's why many Bible teachers use this frame. This phrase, this phrase on the screen, which is that the local church is the hope of the world. 
Now you will have heard that often here at BPCC. We say this. Bill Hybels is a very influential preacher in the States and he, he expands this phrase to say this. He says, the local church, when it is working right, is the hope of the world. Now what is meant by this clarification when it is working right? That's what we're going to be looking at over the next four weeks in this series because a church working right is the hope of the world. The world that you and I live in is broken because of sin. And sin is the word describing humanity's rejection of God. We want to go our own way. We want to ignore what God says. The Bible records God's restoration plan of his world and relationship with humanity. And the Bible uses the word gospel, meaning good news, to describe this restoration process that is happening. So as we start this series, I would like you to come please with me to the clearest explanation of the gospel description, which we find in John chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles or your smartphones, go to John chapter 3. I want to read just a few verses from there. They're very well known to many of us. John 3, verse 16. And this is what we read. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, you probably know this, but gospel truths are known as doctrines. And doctrines, when they are understood and lived, they produce culture. And this gospel culture that Christians are to live is explained by Jesus in John chapter 13 where we read, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So gospel Doctrine produces gospel culture. 
if it is working right. And that's the key to vibrant, growing churches. When God's people understand the gospel, they embrace it and they live it, which creates a culture, friends, that is majestic and magnetic. I want you to listen to how Francis Schaeffer puts this. He says, one cannot explain the explosive dynamite, the dunamis. Now let me just explain these couple of words. See this word here, dunamis? That is a Greek word that the original New Testament was written in and it means power. And we in the English language get the word dynamite from this word dunamis. So that's why when we read what Schaefer says, he says one cannot explain the explosive dynamite, the dunamis of the early church apart from the fact that they practised two things simultaneously. Orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community in the midst of the visible church, a community which the world could see. By the grace of God, therefore, the church must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. Our churches have for so often been only preaching points with very little emphasis on community. But exhibition of the love of God is practiced, sorry, but exhibition of the love of God in practice is beautiful and must be there. Now, what the Schaefers and the Heibels and all who understand the gospel of grace are saying is this. They're saying biblical doctrine plus biblical culture are equally essential for the church. When the two are present, the church is working right. What the world needs now, friends, is a visible church where gospel doctrine and gospel culture are hand in hand. Now something about human nature. Every one of us is wired a little bit different. We lean one or two ways when it comes to this culture and doctrine. Some just love doctrines and statements and definitions and church orders and doing things right. Others of us, we love the feel and the vibe and the relationship and the community, the fellowship of being together as God's people. But a healthy church brings the two together. John 3.16 and John 13.34.35. This is what the world needs now. They need to see a church experience and live this. So over the next few weeks in this series, we're going to learn how to do this better as a church. And this will start today by us clarifying and understanding the gospel, the good news about God's amazing love for this world which he created. So look at the screen. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. For this amazing truth to make the impact in us that it deserves, 
we must understand two things. We must understand who this God is and we must understand, secondly, how he loves this world. So firstly, let's ask this question, who is this God that makes this claim, this God that created the universe, this God who is the God of the Christian gospel? Most people have a blurred concept of God. In a powerful little book that's called What is the Gospel, written by Gilbert, uh, sorry, Greg Gilbert, he uses satire to, to help us see how we diminish, without meaning to, but we diminish our concept of God. And I've taken an extract out of this book because when I read it, it hit me hard and I thought, oh. So let's go with it. I'm quoting. Gilbert writes, let me introduce you to God. Notice the small g. You might want to lower your voice a little before we go in. He might be sleeping now. He's old, you know, and doesn't much understand or like this newfangled modern world. His golden days, the ones he talks about when you really get him going, were a long time ago, before most of us were even born. That was back when people cared what he thought about things and considered him pretty important in their lives. Of course, all things changed. All that's changed now, though. And God, poor fellow, just never adjusted very well. Life's moved on and passed him by. Now he spends most of his time just hanging in the garden out back. I go there sometimes to see him. And there we tarry, walking and talking softly and tenderly among the roses. Anyway, a lot of people still like him, it seems. Or at least he manages to keep his poll numbers high. And you'd be surprised how many people even drop by to visit and ask for things every once in a while. But of course that's all right with him. He's here to help. Thank goodness all the crankiness you read about sometimes in his old books, you know, having the earth swallow people up, raining fire down on cities, that sort of thing. All that seems to have faded in his old age. Now he's just a good-natured, low-maintenance friend who's really easy to talk to, especially since he almost never talks back. And when he does, it's usually to tell me through some slightly weird sign that what I want to do regardless is all right with him. That really is the best kind of friend, isn't it? You know the best thing about him, though? He doesn't judge me, ever, for anything. Oh, sure, I know that deep down he wishes I'd be better, more loving, less selfish and all that, but he's realistic. He knows I'm human and nobody's perfect. And I'm totally sure he's fine with that. Besides, forgiving people is his job. It's what he does. After all, he's love, right? And I like to think of love as never judging, only forgiving. That's the God I know and I wouldn't have him any other way. Okay, we can go in now. And don't worry, we don't have to stay long, really, He's grateful for any time he can get. That's 
That's kind of how many people see God today. But if you see God like that, there's no way that you understand your sinful predicament. If you see God like that, there's no way that you understand the love of God. And there's no way that, that you will submit to him like King David did, as is recorded in Psalm 139, where we read, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. God is not a cuddly grandfather. God is the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent creator and sustainer of the universe who loves this world. So here is the question. How do you perceive God? Where did you get your idea of God from? Did you get it from the Bible? Or did you, like many, many, just pick it up kind of? Along the way. If your view of God is true to original Christianity, here's one way that you will know. You will be struck by the beauty of his grace. You will feel both humbled and safe. Both our pride and our fear die in the light of who God is. So now, when we look to Jesus, we can open up and tell him everything about us. And your darkness, however dark, cannot extinguish his light. And here's another way that you can know if you really see God as he is. Other people are safe around you. Other people are safe around you. You are gentle with them. You love them. You serve them. So, your concept of God, is it biblical? Does there need to be an alignment for you to acknowledge the majesty and the might and the power of this Create a God who loves us and loves his world. The second amazing truth of this verse is for God so loved the world is how much God loves the world. I've underlined this two-letter word, so, because this word, so, it shouts the intensity of God's love. And as we grow in seeing God more clearly, we also grow in seeing ourselves more clearly. Because in our text we read this disturbing truth. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked hate things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. You know, it's hard for us to admit that 
that deep down we do love darkness, don't we? That our default, our default is to be selfish and to be self-centred. But friends, all of us, all of us have done evil things and then covered them up fearing exposure. We want to forget the, the memory of bad things that we have done or thought or said. It is hard for us to face ourselves honestly. Like we read here in those few verses. Yet we all know that deep down, much about us is unlovable and it's sinful. Look at the culture that we contribute to. Our culture redefines sin and evil as right and good. We we, we change the labels as if that could change the realities. We tell ourselves we're better than we really are. Let me share something else that I read this week. The Bible challenges the self-flattery that we cling to in our world today. How? First, the law of God exposes the fraudulence of our virtue by showing us the true holiness of God. We don't deserve as much as we think we do. Second, the Bible simply changes the subject to how much God loves the undeserving. In other words, the gospel helps us to stop barricading ourselves against God because it's evil people in denial whom God loves so massively. Friends, I know how bad I am. But this God who sent Jesus loves me so massively. For God so loved the world. Humanity's willful denial of God is the mega offence above all of our other offences that God challenges by his massive love in Christ. Look at this verse again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And this word, only that I've underlined, that means that Jesus is unique. It means that Jesus is irreplaceable. The world has no other hope but in Jesus. By his life and his death and his resurrection, Jesus fulfilled every demand of God in our place. He atoned for our guilt. He satisfied the wrath of God against us. He conquered death on our behalf. He did that all as our substitute because in our helplessness we could not, never, ever dig our own way out. God gave his only son fully, fully. God abandoned him to the desolation of the hell that we utterly deserve. God's only Son is our only way back to God. 
Jesus is the only one who's been given by God. Jesus is the only one acceptable by God. Friends, that is the gospel message. That is the gospel truth. And when we ask the question, well, how do we get there? How do we get that benefit? Well, friends, the rest of verse 16 tells us because it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this word, whoever, is a broad word, a big word. Anyone, however bad, however sinful, however discredited, can enter into the safety of God's love and forgiveness. At the same time, the words not perish, but have eternal life, they're narrow words. Perishing or eternal life are the only alternatives standing before us. Every one of us will go one way or the other. And it all depends on whether we will believe in him, the only son of God. Now, let me just for a moment lean into some theology. This is really important to understand. The original Greek text in which the New Testament was written, the original Greek text of John 3.16 literally says, whoever believes into him should not perish. Real belief takes us into Jesus. Real belief destroys aloofness. You know what that word means, don't you? Aloofness. You know, half-heartedness. Real belief destroys aloofness. When we know, when we understand this biblical doctrinal truth, we move from self-centeredness to Christ-centeredness. As someone said, we stop treating him as a religious garnish to be placed on the side of life. Rather, we find in him our redeemed identity and we surrender our autonomy to him. We live for him because we are forgiven sinners, heaven bound forever and ever. When we look to Jesus in this way, we are brought safely into him forever. We will never be forsaken. We are forever forgiven, forever secure. And it's these gospel doctrines these truths that transform the way that we live, the way that we love, the way we forgive, the way we serve. That's what gospel culture is. That's what our world needs now, friends. And that is BPCC's mission. We are to display, we are to show, we are to live the gospel culture. So, In closing, I want to ask each one of us, are you on board with this need to bring gospel doctrine and gospel culture together? Are you contributing to what God wants to do and is doing 
through BPCC. Because our job, individually and corporately, is to be faithful today. Our job is to believe in Jesus, to trust Jesus, to follow Jesus, to love Jesus. Our job is to hold to gospel doctrine and create gospel culture. A culture of love and peace and forgiveness and gentleness. And we can do that because God's love is so strong that he sent Jesus to take our sin. And our response is now our choice. Next Sunday, we'll continue looking at this. If you've got the growth group booklet, please grab one before you leave. If you didn't get one coming in and use it as a study guide for yourself or or get together with like-minded people and, and study the questions. Because next week, we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15, where we talk about the compelling gospel culture that makes us attractive because it is God-driven, filled with Jesus. So let me pray for us, friends, as we stand at the beginning of this new year and we ask God to work miracles in the lives of those that we care about. Lord, even the lives of those we haven't even met yet because we, your people here at BPCC, we want to live the gospel culture and doctrine together so that we can be this light on a hill, this attractive community, Father, that will draw people to understand for themselves your love for your world and that you use us sinful people, forgiven because of Christ. We just want to say thank you, Lord, and that we can work together as a church in this mission to be ambassadors for you, difference makers for you. So God, as we go into the rest of this year, we want to commit this year to you. Use us for your glory, your purpose. And may all the glory go to you, we pray in Jesus' name. And all those who agreed with this prayer said, Amen. Bless you, church.